Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us today. Today we're going to be talking about a brand new study that just came out of the Lawrence Livermore National Lab. And it shows that recent California wildfires are attributable to human-caused or anthropogenic climate change. And today our guest is Dr. Don Lucas. He's a research scientist at the lab. And he's going to walk us through this report. And um, I'm, I'm really excited to learn more. Welcome to Go Green Radio, Dr. Lucas. It's so great to have you on the show. Hi, Jill. Thank you very much. Um, It's a pleasure and delight to be here to share my research with you and your listeners. Well, we are excited to hear all about it. And just so you know, our listeners love to geek out on science. So you are the perfect guest for us today. We, we love these kinds of conversations. We have listeners from around the globe. So for those folks who haven't experienced California wildfires in person, I'd like to begin by having you talk to us about how the summer burned areas or the BA of California wildfires have changed over the past 50 years. Yeah, that's a great question, and that's really what drove this investigation. So California is a you know very diverse environment. You have the Great Central Valley, you have the coastal regions, and you have the uh, Sierra Mountains. And a lot of these areas are highly forested and vegetated, and our Mediterranean climate means that um, during the summer fire season, um, there's a chance for, for wildfires to spark. And what we found in our research is that California has been getting warmer and drier over the past 50 years. And these changes, in turn, have caused an increase in fire activity. Now, personally, I have lived in California for about 15 years, and even during this relatively short period, eight of the 10 largest wildfire seasons have occurred just in the past 15 years alone. And that's as measured by the total burned area during a given fire season. Yeah, it's been intense. And and I've lived in California most of my adult life. But, you know, without even looking at data, I can feel it. I can feel that these wildfire seasons have changed dramatically. Now, I'd love for you to talk to us, you know, about some of the problems that these wildfires cause. Talk to us about how the intensification in forest fire activity in California has led to a really dramatic impact on ecosystems? Great question. You know, as we all have heard, fires can also be beneficial to the environment and ecosystems. But really, that's under normal conditions. So how can wire fires help? Well, they can clear out dead undergrowth, which allows new vegetation to take hold, And during the regrowth, um, habitats can improve, nutrients can become available, and certain species can prosper. But those changes um, are beneficial under normal circumstances. 
But under rapid climate change conditions, um, ecosystems cannot um, or may not be able to rebound as quickly after a fire as they normally would because the ecosystems are under stress. So with the current and future intensification in fires, we may find that ecosystems may not be able to fully rebound, and there can be a transition of ecosystems, say, for instance, from a, a forested type to grassland areas. And those will be hard um, changes to anticipate and manage going forward in the future. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and you know, I, I, we... We live in a very similar area, you and I, um, and in 2020, um, one of the biggest fires in California's history was right at our back door. And there are still some parts of that burned area that still look nothing like what they used to. And you can only imagine that the, the, the forest and the fauna and the, you know, the wildlife that was, you know, habitating those areas before just can't come back. It's not... Uh, habitable for them anymore. But let's talk about how these increased burned areas impact human health and mortality rates, because of course we care about our ecosystems, but sometimes the big so what for people is how does it impact human beings? Yeah, this is a great question, you know, because it's something that has not only affected me and my neighbor neighbors directly, it's um, the impacts on health um, really is a major concern for all of us. So when wildfires burn, they emit very large plumes of toxic gases and particles. And these, these plumes can travel long distances downwind and affect population zones potentially 100, 200, or even uh, farther away. Um, and as we know, smoke is really dangerous to breathe and can adversely impact human health. So, you know, to take a recent example, um, before COVID, there, were, there was an a, a active fire season and fires that were occurring up in sort of the more northern part of California, about 100 miles away from the Bay Area. And the smoke from those events were being funneled down the Central Valley and turned and hit the Bay Area, um, where, you know, millions of people live. And the, the fire was, um, or the smoke, I should say, was so thick that schools, local schools in the community were shut down because the air was considered so unhealthy for children. So, you know, some of us have heard about snow days in the cold regions of the northeastern U.S., where when you have a winter storm come through, schools can get shut down. Well, we have a new reality here in California. With these active wildfires, you can have schools that are shut down due to fire days because the air outside is just so toxic to breathe. And we're seeing... Um, evidence of this occurring not only in California now, but with the wildfires in Canada, the air quality um, from those fires is being, uh, is affecting millions of people across the United States. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, and it's not just for a couple of days. I mean, I remember in 2018, um, when, when the fires you were talking about pre-COVID in California were happening, 
this went on for a long time. And, and, you know, we have schools in some parts of the state that, that don't have a lot of air conditioning systems and sophisticated modern HVAC systems. And, you know, their solution a lot of times for ventilation is to open the windows. That was not possible. And, you know, right now we're, we're working on investments in school infrastructure, but that's just one piece of this cost of climate change um, that we have to address. And, and that is the contingency for schools to continue operating um, under these conditions, under this new normal. That's, that's kind of my world, Dr. Lucas. My nonprofit organization, the Go Green Initiative, works with K through 12 schools throughout the country. And this is something that yeah, we're definitely addressing. You know, it also impacts human mortality. And I'd love to give you a minute to kind of talk to us about that. Yeah, so, um, you know, that is a direct concern because um, the particles that get produced by active fires um, can contain a large number of what are called PM 2.5 particles. So there's stands for particulate matter with a diameter of 2.5 microns. And they're of just the right size where they can travel long distances and are readily, um, you know, inhalable by people. And um, when we inhale PM 2.5 particles, um, you know, they can sort of get stuck and lead to uh, diseases and whatnot. And, you know, it, it's such a major concern that the levels of PM 2.5 particles are um, monitored and, um, you know, controlled and regulated by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Yeah, that's, that is a really big deal. Now, I know that the recent California wildfires have also caused numerous socioeconomic consequences, and I'd love to have you talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, as we know, we know that um, wildfires are highly destructive. They damage landscapes. They can destroy buildings and infrastructure and um, even lead to the losses of lives. Um, but there are other impacts, socioeconomic uh, impacts and disruptions um, that are worth mentioning that might not seem as clear at first. Um, but like in the example we just talked about where schools get closed, well, that can happen without very much notice. And if a school is shut down because the air outside is too hazardous to breathe, um, there might not be enough time for parents to plan for you know how to how to manage their kids for the day, and they may be forced to take time off of work, mm-hmm. and that is a direct uh, socioeconomic loss. Um, and you know another another sort of telling sign of the potential so- socioeconomic consequences of fires in California just recently, two of the largest insurance companies, Allstate and State Farm are no longer accepting new applications uh, for homeowner policies just because the risk of wildfires is so high in this state. Wow. That's right. I, that's been some pretty recent news that, that really jarred me. I mean, a lot of young Californians, young adults still dream of home ownership, and that's just one more obstacle um, besides, you know, sometimes the lack of affordable housing. Uh, if you can't get that homeowner's insurance policy 
you're not going to get a loan from the bank um, to to cover that mortgage, and that's that's a big one. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the leading causes of the increased burned areas because you know sometimes I talk to seasoned veteran California residents who are like, oh, we've always had wildfires, you know, this is normal. But the 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 leading causes of this increased burned area, I think, are important to understand. So, talk to us about that. Yeah, and that's where the research gets really interesting and exciting, and, um, you know, it's very well described in our paper. Um, But, you know, basically, yeah, fires are a result of a complex mixture of many different factors. And, um, and combinations of those factors. So oftentimes they require, you know, high temperatures, um, low amounts of precipitation or drought-like conditions, and then an air condition um, um, that's a measure of dryness called vapor pressure deficit. And so we tested various combinations of, of these factors um, to see which which combinations were most positively associated with the growing trend in wildfire burned area in California. And as described in detail in our research, um, we use comprehensive statistical techniques to screen for and identify the leading causes and most important factors that can help explain this trend. And what we found is that surface air temperature and changes in surface air temperature um, is the primary driver of changes in burned area in California um, over the past uh, 50 years. So, um, you know, and it's very, um, and it doesn't really require an advanced degree in statistics to be able to understand how closely related air temperature and burned area are. So we have a figure in our paper that basically displays the uh, data for those two variables for air temperature and burned area over time. And if you look at at the figure, you can see that when burned area and temperature, um, when burned area goes up, temperature um, tends to go up in a related fashion, and mm-hmm. so on. So they're they're very highly correlated, and that's a strong strong indicator that um, it is in fact changes in air temperature that's driving the changes in in wildfire activity. That is really interesting, um, and and honestly, the first time I've heard that that stated before. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have so much more with Dr. Lucas. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Follow Voice America at facebook.com forward slash voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. 
Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. If you're just joining us, let me catch you up on what we're talking about today. There's a brand new piece of research out of the Lawrence Livermore National Lab that shows that the the leading cause and the, the underpinnings of some of the most recent and fierce California wildfires is human-caused climate change. And we have Dr. Don Lucas, one of the co-authors of the paper, on today to talk to us about how the researchers came to that conclusion, what the ramifications of that are. And right before the break, Dr. Lucas, you were talking about some of the leading causes of the increased burned area. And you talked about air temperatures, but I'd love to have you talk to us about some of the non-climatic external factors that have been implicated in the changing wildfire characteristics. What are those? Yeah, and it's one of the reasons that makes wildfire research particularly challenging because it's not only climate and weather conditions that drive changes in fire activity, but it's a lot of other factors as well, um, including societal and human-based factors. So on the societal side, land management practices um, can involve things like fire suppression, or prescribed burning. And so in the in in terms of fire suppression, you know, that can actually lead to a buildup of um, fuel that may enhance risk of future fire. Uh, whereas prescribed burning can clear out some of the dead fuel um, and, you know, potentially lessen um, uh, the risk of future fires. However, the danger with prescribed burning, if it's not done in, in a well-monitored uh, and controlled fashion, is things could get out of hand, and what starts as a prescribed burn could could potentially grow larger. So, um, yeah, in addition to land management practices, um, land development po- policies also play an important role because um, land development affects where new structures are being built, whether they're in high-risk zones or low-risk zones. There's a zone that's of particular interest to the wildfire research community called the WUI, and that's a W-U-I, and that stands for the Wildland Urban in- Interface. And over the past couple of decades, many new developments within California 
um, have been built right at the wildland urban interface, and they're at a high risk for future fires. Um, In addition to land management and land development, fire ignitions are also strongly influenced by non-human climate activities. For instance, power lines um, may go through highly vegetated zones, and if there's a spark on the the power line, it may may induce a fire. Um, And roads, believe it or not, are uh, associated with many um, ignitions of fires that um, aren't started by lightning. So just the presence of roads and and people driving on and using roads can increase um, fire risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Now, I can imagine there might be some listeners who might say, okay, these fires happened. Who cares why? Um, but, but I want you to talk to us about why it's important for us to know if these changes in burned area are due to natural variability or anthropogenic climate change. Why is it so important for us to know that? That is the, the heart of uh, many climate science questions, being able to disentangle anthropogenic signals from natural variability. So the climate on its own without humans would vary. Um, We go from warm temperatures during the summertime in the northern hemisphere to to cold temperatures. And that's a a highly predictable pattern. Um, But anthropogenic signals are often Um, sitting right on top of those patterns. So we need to be able to separate the anthropogenic signal from these natural variations so that we can better assess and predict the consequences of anthropogenic climate change. So um, this is one reason why climate analysis is really challenging, because both effects are happening at the same time. So if we're able to understand and quantify natural variations better, what it allows us to do as climate scientists is better isolate the anthropogenic component from measurements of the climate system. And if we can do that, that will enable us to better understand human-induced effects. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. What are some of the biggest challenges that you faced that were involved with attributing California's wildfire increases to anthropogenic climate change? Talk to us about, you know, what you faced in trying to to parse that out. Yeah, that's actually a very challenging um, question um, is... So or the, the biggest challenge in answering the attribution question is really we had a noisy signal to deal with. Mm-hmm. So um, unlike changes in temperature due to the changes in seasons, which are highly predictable, um, the changes in wildfire activity are more uh, variable on a year-to-year basis. And so what this means is it makes it harder to predict or understand the drivers of what's causing changes in wildfire activity. So what we did to help, um, you know, overcome this challenge is we looked at a longer record of what are um, very accurate and reliable climate data that stretch back 50 years over California. 
And using this accurate record of climate data, we were able to build a predictive data-driven model that we could use to understand and dissect the relationships between burned area and natural and anthropogenic climate drivers, um, you know, during a period and over time. Gotcha. And, and what factors in the increased burned area indicated this is anthropogenic climate change instead of this is natural variability? Yeah, that's a, a great question. So we drew upon two sets of specially crafted climate model simulations um, to provide another key ingredient for our research. These climate model simulations enabled us to indicate that anthropogenic causes were at play when it comes to the observed increase in burned area. So these simulations came from a, um, a set of studies called detection and attribution studies. So in these studies, what, what scientists do is they run climate simulations um, that contain only natural variations um, that exclude um, human-based greenhouse gases and other, you know, anthropogenic-type factors. So these are natural-only simulations. So the other set of simulations in these detection and attribution studies um, run climate models with all of the forcings, both natural forcings, greenhouse gases, and other human effects. So we have two sets of climate simulations, one that, that's natural only, and the other that's you know, natural plus human. And what you can do is compare and contrast the climate information you get from these sets and use that information to detect changes um, in climate and to be able to attribute those changes to anthropogenic or natural variations. Gotcha. And, and this, is, this is really interesting. I know that we've got a lot of STEMI folks who are really into science and, and make a habit of reading white papers all the time. And this is really, really fascinating. So now we get to the, the million-dollar question. What did your research conclude about the anthropogenic climate change influence on recent California wildfires? Yes, um, I think this was what, what was probably the most exciting result in our paper. Um, so using these two sets of climate simulations, so nature only and then nature plus human, we were able to go back to our data-driven model, which we showed was highly predictive and explanatory. And what we did is we put these um, two sets of climate simulations through our data-driven model. And what we found was that between um, 1971 and 2001, these two sets of simulations more or less overlapped with one another. However, when we looked at years after 2001, they started to separate. And we also found that the degree to which they separated continued to increase through the end of our evaluation period in 2021. Mm. So what, what all of this means, essentially, is that the anthropogenic fingerprint of humans on burned area in California was not really detectable prior to the year 2001. 
but that signal started to be detectable in 2001, and the signal has been getting stronger and stronger ever since. Wow. And so that, that, is, that separation is what has enabled us to make this attribution of the changes in, in wildfires in California to anthropogenic causes. Wow, that that is that's incredible, and and having a pivot point there with two thousand one um, is is really powerful. Uh, in our next segment, we're going to be talking about the so what. Okay, this is what the research shows. So what? What's next? And so we're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have much more with Dr. Don Lucas from the Lawrence Livermore National Lab. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Birdie told me Voice America is on Twitter. Follow us at Voice America TRN. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could tune in. And if you're just joining us, let me catch you up. Today, we're talking about a brand new piece of research that's come out of the Lawrence Livermore National Lab, and it attributes the recent increase in burned areas of California wildfires to anthropogenic or human-caused climate change. And in the last segment, uh, Dr. Don Lucas, a research scientist with the lab, was talking to us about the conclusions, both the methodology and the conclusions of the research. And now we're going to spend some time talking about what's next. Now this research is done, what happens with that information? So uh, Dr. Lucas, what does your research indicate about the future of burned areas in the next decades here in California? California. 
Yeah, that's a great question. So we kind of um, divided our research up into three pieces. And the first piece was really about, can we you know, build a, a data-driven type model that we can use to understand the relationships between fire and climate variables and other factors. And then the second stage was being able to use that model to look in the past and attribute the changes in the past to natural or human-induced changes. But the third and um, also a very important part of the study was looking ahead. So once we realized that we had a predictive data model and that we could do the attribution in the past, we then set set ourselves on to looking in the future. So we applied climate model projections of climate change 30 years into the future to our data-driven fire model. So this type of analysis gives a good window into what the future may hold for fires in California. However, because we don't know with certainty how humans will continue to affect climate in the future, we considered many possible scenarios of the future. And what those are... There are climate simulations that are run out in the future under different assumptions, Um, you know, one being that we continue to burn fossil fuels at the rate that we have been burning them, or another scenario might be that we reduce the amount of fossil fuels that we burn, but we still continue to do so. And so we, we um, gathered many of these scenarios of the future and used those to drive our, our fire climate model. And what this analysis showed is that the average burn area will tend to increase in the future in California. And we also found that by the year 2050, so that's about 30 years from now, the average burned area in California may increase by as much as 50% or more. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do have to caveat these results because it's difficult to predict the future, and there could be a wide range of um, different amounts by which um, you know, fires will impact climate in the future. Mm-hmm. You know, there are so many ramifications of what you just shared, but my mind immediately goes to Cal Fire and the firefighting community here in California, because in light of, of your findings, that means everything to them in terms of manpower, uh, dollars, investments in, you know, equipment and all of that. I'm wondering if the firefighting community has in any way, I know that the paper just came out recently, but have they reacted to this research and these findings in any way? Well, I think the good news there is they were um, starting to react and prepare before this paper. They are anticipating more difficult um, conditions fighting fires in the future. Um, and, and, you know, it's for good cause because um, they've seen the uptick in, in fire activity per season just over the last, you know, 10, 15 years. And so I was um, down in Southern California recently for a workshop on, on wildfire research, and we invited uh, a number of, um, you know, folks from the firefighting community to come talk with us. And it was exciting to hear them 
um, you know, describe measures that they're taking to help anticipate and better predict and better be prepared to, to fight wildfires. And, you know, a couple of examples of things that they're doing. So they're, um, they're thinking about creating additional categories uh, of, um, you know, high-risk conditions. Um, so we've all heard of red flag conditions when um, we have Santa Ana or Diablo-like winds blowing o- over California. So you get these hot, dry winds that can occur at the peak of fire season. And, um, you know, those are associated with red flag warnings. Well, you know, the firefighting um, communities are looking at different categories to capture new types of risk that we're going to have in the future. And another exciting thing I learned about is that they're starting to equip um, high-risk areas with additional measurement capabilities and sensors that can help immediately identify um, high-risk areas that will allow them to respond immediately. Well, that's, you know, I would expect nothing less of of our brave and um, and and well informed uh, firefighting services. I mean, they they are amazing, and so that's great to hear. I'm wondering what are some of the protective adaptations that California could enact to address the fire activity your research predicts. Well, and there's good news on that front as well. So there are many things we can do to help prepare for a future with more fires. So one of the easiest things we can do as homeowners is to increase the amount of defensible space around our homes by clearing out debris and, you know, reducing the amount of fuel that can help spark or spread fires. So CAL FIRE has a a great set of resources that provides many recommendations and tips for making our homes safer. And they recommend starting at sort of points closest to your home and working out to a perimeter about 100 feet away. And they're really simple measures and, and things we can do as individuals to help you know, prepare for the future. Mm-hmm. And another thing um, that we could do, um, so communities, you know, so from the individual level to the community level, communities can start to um, consider changes in zoning laws that minimize development in high-risk wildland urban interface areas. Mm-hmm. And then um, perhaps even at the state level, there are some things we can do through legislature. Um, and a good example of that is in uh, 2022, last year, California enacted a law that reallows indigenous tribes the right to conduct cultural burns on their lands. And that's something that used to be common practice a long time ago. And what we found, researchers have found that indigenous lands tend to be more resistant to fires. So if we can take that idea and learn uh, from the indigenous tribes and apply that across the state, it may result in a more fire-resilient California for everyone. 
Mm-hmm. And we actually had some of the folks that are doing that, those tribal burns um, on Go Green Radio just a few weeks ago. And it was fascinating to hear, you know, the cultural wisdom and the methodology behind what they're doing in conjunction with modern firefighting, uh, you know, agencies and methodologies. And so that's that's pretty awesome. Now, I know that your research team was international in nature. Um, do you think that your methodology is replicable for other areas that want to determine the anthropogenic climate change impacts of other wildfires or natural disasters. Talk to us about the replicability of your methodology. Yeah, um, I would first like to sort of point out, um, you may be curious as to why an international team decided to focus specifically on, on fires in California. Well, I think that's a testament to the problem that we have here. So it's recognized around the world that the, the fires that we've been experiencing in California are unprecedented, and and we're seeing similar fires of this magnitude occur in in Canada and other places. So, um, and and the other benefit of having an international team is it allows you to sort of attack problems with different points of view and different experiences and skills. And so we, as a team, were able to develop a methodology. Um, that we believe is sort of general in nature and that this methodology for being able to detect and attribute signals and climate data to anthropogenic causes, um, that this methodology could, in fact, be used in other parts of the world and perhaps even for other types of disasters such as floods or droughts. So, but the key step in being able to to sort of take the methods from the study and apply them elsewhere is the ability to construct these data-driven models. So these models must contain the relevant features that relate, you know, climate information to the, you know, response or disaster of interest. And these models must capture those relationships really well. Um, However, sometimes it's not so easy to do that. Mm -hmm. And actually, this is kind of an area where I think new um, advancements in artificial intelligence and machine learning can help humans and researchers build better data-driven models that are um, disaster-specific or region-specific that can then be used for um, detection and attribution studies. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's exciting. Um, and, and I'm glad to hear that, you know, there, what all of your hard work might be able to feed into other bodies of research and, and help uh, advance our understanding of this. How do you hope that your research will be used by public policymakers? Because at the end of the day, there's got to be some public policy around, um, around addressing this issue. Yes, another great question. So often, sometimes there can be a disconnect between a research product and then a policy that can help act on the findings in the research. And at a more general level, sort of toward climate change policy, um, I would say our research is one of many data points that is showing that climate change effects are occurring everywhere, and they seem to be occurring at an unprecedented pace. 
And so the more research and evidence we gather that highlight the negative effects of climate change, um, I think that will result in a better position to help mitigate and prepare for uh, these effects in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope researchers will um, use the information in our study to provide policymakers with additional information and tools to help them make the best decisions. In terms of uh, wildfires more specifically, I hope that this research is able to move policy discussions away from debates around what the causes of the recent changes in wildfires are to the more useful topics and discussions of how to improve our climate resiliency and, um, and being able to mitigate future effects. Well said. Boy, there's a lot of work to do and a lot of people involved in that, but your research has really primed the pump for some uh, more uh, aggressive, maybe more forward-thinking public policy, and I really appreciate that. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but we have more to talk about with Dr. Don Lucas from the Livermore National Laboratory, so don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could tune in. And just in case you've only now joined us, let me catch you up. We're talking about a new report that came out of the Lawrence Livermore National Lab. Um, It was an international effort on the part of many research scientists, and it shows that the increased burned areas of California wildfires of the last few years 
is attributable to human-caused climate change. And we've really appreciated having Dr. Don Lucas on with us to explain the research and help us understand the ramifications of the research. Dr. Lucas, I, I wonder, and I, we always like to empower our listeners, you know, we don't just want to give them information and for their own edification. We want to empower them to do things with the information they glean from Go Green Radio. So I'm wondering, is there a role for the everyday person who's concerned about climate change to take your research and share it with others to bring about some kind of positive change? I think there's a, a lot we can do to sort of help as individuals tackle the climate change problem. So when it comes to climate change, um, the motto that I like to live by is think globally, but act locally. So kind of the way I interpret this is if we all sit around and wait for the governments of the world to join together and come to some agreement about setting the policies for tackling climate change, then we're going to be sitting around for a very long time. Mm -hmm. um, but as individuals, there are things we can do to make uh, choices about living greener life, lives that can actually have a more immediate impact. And just in the last you know, five years alone, we've been witnessing, um, especially in, you know, in California, this transformation of our economy from one based on fossil fuels to a green economy um, through a rapid adoption of solar energy and electric vehicles. So on the same note, I would be thrilled if people out there take the lessons learned from my research and use it as motivation uh, for themselves and others to help live greener lives so that we can all live in a healthier world in the future. I love that. I love that. And I think, you know, I think we have listeners who will do just that. And I think for a while, uh, you know, in the past few years, a lot of people looked to the California wildfire situation outside of California and said, oh, poor California. But now folks on the East Coast are being impacted by the wildfires in Canada. Folks in Europe have had record uh, wildfire activity. And I think people are starting to wonder, what can I do? What can my family do to bring down the greenhouse gas emissions that are causing climate change? If, if these catastrophes are truly being caused by climate change, we all need to look inwardly and say, what am I doing to contribute to that? And, and look for ways to bring down our own greenhouse gas emissions. And then, uh, you know, because a certain amount of, of greenhouse gases have already gone into the atmosphere and we are going to have to adapt to climate change, look at ways that we as individuals and more importantly, as you mentioned, local communities can prepare to be resilient in the face of climate change. And there's, there's a lot of uh, preparation and investment uh, involved with being ready for that. And so uh, I, I fully expect that our listeners will take what you just said to heart. You know, I'd love to give you a chance to talk about some of the other work that you do at the Lawrence Livermore National Lab. What are some of the other projects that you're working on? Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, fire uh, research is one of, of many different areas that I work in. Um, and the Lawrence Livermore National Lab is a, is a really exciting place to work because um, 
we have scientists and engineers with a diverse range of experiences and backgrounds that work together on you know small teams, medium teams, and large teams. Um, you may or may not know, but the lab hosts the most powerful laser system in the world called NIF, which is the National Ignition Facility, and it houses many of the most powerful supercomputers in the world. So um, as a researcher, I like to tap into this diversity of people and resources to work on a range of different projects. You know, just to give you a few examples, um, early on in my career at the lab, I worked on projects to build tools that can track and monitor greenhouse gas emissions, both in California and around the world. Um, I use supercomputers to quantify uncertainties in future climate change and use supercomputers to assess the safety of our nation's protective uh, weapons. Um, you know, and more recently, um, was able to use advanced algorithms to try to determine the levels of radioactive materials that were re released to the environment during the Fukushima nuclear accident, you know, a little bit more than 10 years ago. Um, and more recently, and this is kind of a trend that's happening throughout all of scientific research, this emergence of powerful artificial um, intelligence algorithms. So my team uh, and myself were using these new AI tools to try to see if we can speed up predictions of where hazardous materials may go if they're accidentally dispersed in the atmosphere. Oh, that's so interesting. Oh, gosh, we've got to have you back on to talk more about this. This is that's really fascinating. You know, Dr. Lucas, we have a lot of young adults who listen to Go Green Radio because they want a career in sustainability and they, they have a wide variety of interests and educational paths that they're looking at. But they like to look to our guests on Go Green Radio for career advice. So based on your career experience, what advice do you have for them? That's another great question. So when I look back in time, when I was just getting started, I think the most important thing for me was to associate myself with peers and mentors who had similar values and ideals and motivations. Um, because when you're working with a great group of people, there's a, a synergy um, that, you know, you just can't capture, you know, other ways. And so if this group is working toward a common goal, you can encourage each other. And, um, you know, and it, it's really about, you know, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Mm -hmm. So um, early in my career, I was lucky enough to be guided by very thoughtful supervisors. And they, they sort of knew when um, I needed a hand, they would come in and sort of help me make some decisions about how to handle problems or which directions to go. But just as importantly, they knew when to sort of get out on my own and, uh, or get out of the way and let me venture on my own when I was able to start being creative and, and sort of developing new approaches to solving complicated environmental problems. And um, so not only the mentors, but my peers and colleagues, you know, were always there to help reinforce, you know, the importance of this professional direction that I decided to choose for my life. So if, you know, 
there was ever a time when I, you know, stopped and asked the question, why am I, why am I an environmental scientist? Well, it didn't take long for one of my peers to jump in and say, well, because it's really important. You know, not only can you, um, you know, help, you know, um, make the world a better place, but it gives you the opportunity to, you know, as a scientist, dig in and work on some really complicated problems. That, that is really cool advice. And I'll tell you, for a lot of our young adults who have been impacted by COVID and the isolation of, you know, working remotely and, and um, all of that, you know, all the Zoom calls and everything, that social aspect of the work that you do, um, that's really sage advice. And that's really important to remember um, that we don't want to lose that <laughs> um, in, the, in the workforce of the future. Uh, Dr. Lucas, thank you so much for joining us. It has been a pleasure talking with you and congratulations on your new uh, article that's just come out. I want to thank all of our listeners for joining us as well. We'll be here same time time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. And until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.